Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. Hello and welcome to Reloscope, the Relationship Science Insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions in life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Aditi Kuti. Let's get on with the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Reloscope, the Relationship Science Insights Podcast. And today I am your host. My name is Lou, and I'm standing in for Aditi since she's sick. She'll be back very soon. But in the meantime, I'm here to bring you more science about relationships. And today we're here with Dr. Lisa Welling. She's going to talk to us about contraception, pros and cons in a relationship. And she's the perfect guest to talk about this because she's a tenured associate professor at Oakland University in Rochester, Michigan, USA. Her main research area is made choice with a special interest in hormonal mechanisms. Lisa, thank you so much for being here. And thank you for bearing with us through all the technical difficulties uh, through the wait. Um, We really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. So um, I always love to ask my guests uh, to introduce themselves. Normally, I don't host this show, um, but, you know, I host two other shows for LMSL. And I always ask my guests to introduce themselves because I think there's a much better story being told from their perspective than mine. Um, So please tell us a bit more about yourself rather than the two sentences that I just used to introduce you, you know, who you are, why you got here in your career, and maybe some fun facts about yourself that, you know, our listeners would like to know. Sure. So I'm Lisa Welling. I'm actually originally from the East Coast of Canada, from a place called New Brunswick, um, above Maine for your, you know, listeners from North America. And um, I got my PhD in Scotland, of all places, actually at the University of Aberdeen, under the direction of Dr. Ben Jones. After that, I did a postdoc under the direction of Dr. Ben Jones and Dr. Lisa Bryan, also at the University of Aberdeen before doing a another postdoc at Penn State University here in the United States with Dr. David Putz. And then I came here to Oakland University in 2012 and I've been here ever since. It was tenured in 2017. And that's basically the story of me. Um, I got interested in May Choice a long time ago um, and by proxy got interested in hormonal mechanisms associated with mate choice. And what I mean by that is the underlying kind of biological and hormonal chemical messengers that influence what we find attractive, who we find attractive, why, and so forth. Oh, wow. That sounds so interesting. I would love to learn more about that. I don't know much about this area at all. So that sounds <laughs> interesting. If you can throw in some, some of that science when we talk about contraception, that'll be really awesome. Uh, but oh, I've got a lot for before, you. I've got a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Before we do that, let's get to know you a bit better. We have a section called, Have You Met Dr. Lisa Welling? So we're going to get some recommendations from you. Just five things that come to the top of your mind when you hear these words. Are you ready? Okay, sure. Let's do it. Okay. What is a book you would recommend to our listener? So I'll plug my own book, The Oxford Handbook of Evolutionary Psychology and Behavioral Endocrinology by Welling and Shackelford. So I'll plug my own. (laughs) Oh, wow. What is it about? It's literally about the various different types of behavioral endocrinology from an an evolutionary perspective. So what that means from an evolutionary perspective, it means that we are looking at these questions in terms of why these behaviors are adaptive and why they would have been selected for in our ancestral past. 
Mm, wow, that that's a new topic to me. I don't hear about that very often, probably because of the shows that I host. But uh, yeah, this is you new to me. I really like again. it. We can yeah. talk about it. I'm happy too. Totally. To. <laughs> totally, totally. I mean, you can probably talk about happiness and well-being as well, but uh, we'll we'll discuss that in another in another podcast episode, perhaps. So that's a book. What about a movie you would recommend? So this is going to age me a bit, but Star Wars: Return of the Jedi. <laughs> oh, I love that one. Yeah, I really love that one. That's a good one. Agreed. What about a podcast? You're on the show now, but I I wonder what you listen to. Life Management Science Labs. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. We have 10 podcasts, <laughs> not just one. So you're recommending all of them. Wow. All what of them. I recommend plug. all of them. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. Well, I'm hoping that you've listened to some of them at least. And yeah, you, you support us. Yeah. 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 In preparation cool. for this, actually, when I got the link, I looked over a couple of them. I also like yeah. Dax Shepard's Armchair Experts. So that's another one I can, oh, I can there you go. a shout out to. Yeah. That's, that sounds good. Thank you. New to me, but sounds good. All right. Next one. Who is your famous role model? Or if not famous, then your personal role model. Well, for a famous role model, I guess I'll have to go with Jane Goodall. Any reason, particular reason why? Oh, I just think the work, I mean, first of all, I think the time that she came up into research where she didn't have the resources that, you know, her colleagues might have had, particularly her male colleagues. I think she did a tremendous job and she really kind of pioneered her field. So I think she's just, I've actually gotten to meet her twice, which was amazing. Um, And I think she's just an incredible role model. Oh, that's amazing. I'm so happy to hear that you've met your your famous role model. That's amazing. That's super cool. Yes, I met her twice. The first time she had a broken wrist. So she was signing books with just a fingerprint. And so the second time I met her, I brought that book back because she no longer had the broken wrist. So she was actually signing things. And the first thing she did was open up and go, hey, look, that's my fingerprint. So quirky. I quite like her. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, hey, that's actually, actually a really good idea. You know, signing your book with your fingerprint. That's really unique. I like that. But also a little dangerous. Too, yeah. yeah, a little <laughs> dangerous because you don't know, you know, if people are going to use your, your fingerprint for something I else. Really, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, that's a good one. Um, so finally, what is a course you've completed that you would like to talk about? Human sexuality. Oh, is that the one you did for your PhD, if I'm not mistaken? Oh, I've taken a, a human sexuality course mostly as an undergrad, but it's also a course oh, okay. that I, uh, I teach it at both the undergrad and graduate levels. So um, it's, a, I think, a really interesting topic, just generally human mm. sexuality. I mean, it's it's directly relevant to my area of study, mate choice. Uh, mm. So I think it's a, we're an interesting species. <laughs> yeah, that sounds really interesting, actually. I think there's a, an upcoming episode on one of the shows about sexuality as well. And I was kind of like, oh, this is going to be an interesting topic to discover because, you know, we don't talk about this very often. Not nearly enough, frankly. And there's so many yeah. taboos hang up surrounding human sexuality. It's mm-hmm. it's something that you only get past through talking about it, talking about it not yeah. just in a clinical sense, but in an interpersonal sense. And people should feel yeah. comfortable discussing elements of their own sexuality and so forth, obviously in appropriate contexts and situations, yeah. but still. Yeah, totally. Sounds good. Well, now let's talk a bit more about the topic of today, because I think it's going to be related to sexuality as well. I mean, Definitely, if not directly, then indirectly and in other shapes or forms. But we're talking about contraception today and the show is about relationships. So first of all, I would like to hear your definition of a relationship. How would you describe a relationship? So broadly, a relationship in any way, be it positive or negative, um, it's any way that two or more people are connected, kind of broadly speaking. Relationships are varied and they're very diverse. 
you have work relationships, you have acquaintances, friendships, family relationships, romantic relationships, and so on. Relationships vary in terms of how present they are and how much they impact our lives. Uh, Most of the time, at least in my line of work, people think of romantic and sexual relationships when they hear the word relationship. Romantic relationships involve emotional and often physical intimacy between usually two people. Yeah, I think that's a good point because a lot of the times when when we talk about this show, we were kind of like, oh, do we call it romantic relationships or do we just call it relationships? And I guess that's where, you know, the line is kind of blurred a little bit. But um, yeah, to be more inclusive, I think the word relationships would cover all grounds. Although Mm -hmm. that also raised the questions, do we cover other kinds of relationships besides romantic relationships? You know, Um, so, yeah, it's a it's an interesting point to discover. And this is how we're going to keep growing this show. But um, I wonder, what do you think about relationships in terms of its growth? Because, you know, over the past few decades um, and and the years that have gone, relationships have evolved, especially in the context of, you know, romantic relationships that you just talked about. It's changed so much. You know, there are new things all the time that we kind of cannot keep up with. Me personally, Uh I'm also kind of like I'm a millennial, but I'm struggling with this because I really don't understand it. As I'm well a fellow millennial, so don't worry. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, do do I know enough? Like, should I? I should get to know more, but I don't know where to start. So, how do you think it has evolved? And I'll throw in a little personal question: How should we learn more about it? Well, although the structure of relationships and the legal issues surrounding relationships has certainly changed, humans have this near universal need to belong and yearn to feel accepted in their social groups. So I do think relationships in general are just as important as they've always been. But people now have more options with respect to how they pursue various relationships and with whom. The social expectations have and are changing, which is very important. So, for example, women used to have few options and choosing not to marry could have devastating impacts on their livelihoods, longevity and quality of life. Well, now that women can choose whether or not to have children, whether or not to get married, they can have fulfilling careers, they can open their own bank accounts and so on. Traditional marriage is considered less important for many people. You are seeing more and more women in particular who are single by choice that you didn't used to see in years past for a variety of reasons. However, the majority of women do still choose to have romantic relationships. And in the absence of romantic relationships, there are usually other important relationships that fill that kind of void. So they provide a similar level of emotional support. Usually it's a close friendship or a close family member. So I do think relationships have evolved in terms of like the legal issues surrounding them and the amount of choice and flexibility people have in who they pursue relationships with. But the need for relationships is ever present. And I mean, how you can find out more about just kind of relationships generally, I think it depends on what kind of relationship you want to find more information about. But certainly there are lots of resources with respect to relationships. There's lots of textbooks out there. There's lots of literature out there. There's lots of self-help books. Um, You can speak with a doctor. You can speak with a therapist. Uh, So and you can always reach out to professors. We're always really happy to talk about our work. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Certainly that's an option. Yeah. So there's lots of different ways in which you can learn more about relationships. But first, I would think about what specific type of relationship you need. Is it friendship? Is it romantic relationship? And so on. Mm, Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting point to think about, because, again, I don't think anyone really sit down, you know, at the end of the day and be like, 
what do relationships mean in my life? And, you know, like, how have they evolved? Yeah. <laughs> it's not really something you think about very frequently. So, yeah, that's a good one. So that is uh, what we are talking about in terms of relationships. But the topic of the day is about contraception. So we're going to go a little bit deeper into that. And these questions are going to perhaps make some people wonder about their choices or, you know, start thinking about contraception more seriously. Because uh, when I was reading through the question, I was like, kind of like, oh, really? Like, I didn't really do any research in this area. So I really should. So first of all, how do you define contraception? Well, contraception refers to any technique or product that is used to prevent pregnancy. So it includes behavioral techniques like the pullout method, which is not something that people would recommend if you're actively trying to get to not get pregnant. Um, also selectively choosing which days to abstain from sex, which is sometimes called fertility awareness methods or family planning methods. So it includes those kinds of techniques. Uh, there are also what are called barrier methods, and barrier methods are things like condoms and diaphragms, which literally block sperm. Most people think of hormonal contraceptives, like birth control pills, when they think of contraception. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it sounds to me like most of these are, you know, like carried out by the female in the relationship, right? It's, there aren't as many yes. like methods, as you would call them, that come from our male counterparts. So that's interesting. Yes, unfortunately, that's true. They are working yeah. on hormonal contraception for men, but yeah. they originally were hoping it would be on the market in 2020, and that didn't happen because of a variety of side effects that the men mm. in these trials were experiencing, things like severe headaches and stuff of that nature, which interestingly are also side effects that women can experience on hormonal contraception, interestingly yeah. enough. Yeah. Um, so be that what it is. Uh, but um, <laughs> alas... They uh, that hasn't yet really come to market and they're still doing additional research into techniques for male contraception at the moment, especially when it comes to hormonal methods. Women bear the brunt of that responsibility, unfortunately, although, of course, that being said, I believe that within any relationship, be it, you know, a long term or short term relationship, that both parties should feel responsible for contraception. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think I read a research, uh, I think last year I saw a research about uh, male contraception. So, you know, like uh, methods that women normally use, but actually for the male counterparts. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, this is really new. This is interesting. And then they started talking about side effects. And I was like, but female birth control have side effect as well. It so absolutely <laughs> where, yeah. where are we with that? So, it, yeah, I think it's also a matter of balancing things out because... Mm -hmm. I think it's it's time to have a conversation between both parties and it's not just, you know, the, the women that should bear the brunt of it, like you just said earlier. Yeah. Um, and we shouldn't which, dismiss male. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. I don't think we should dismiss <laughs> okay. the side effects that males, males are experiencing as a result of, of hormonal contraception. But on the flip side of that, if women are also experiencing the side effects, that means that we should be taking those just as seriously. Absolutely. Yeah, that's what, that's what I was getting at, because at the moment I hear a lot of my female friends talk about the side effects that they are, you know, experiencing. And really, I think it, sometimes they sound horrible. Like I just yeah. did, could not imagine. I was like, oh, well, okay. I don't have those, thankfully. But for those that do have these side effects, that's pretty horrible for them because mm -hmm. they change completely. And I'm just like, whoa, that's not okay for them. Um, and that's the thing, because we want to talk about how this will affect relationships. So that leads me to my next question. How does contraception affect relationships from your research and your work? 
Well, first, this is a very complex question. So bear with me because it's going to be a pretty long winded answer. <laughs> I thought but, so. <laughs> I'll, I'll try and get through this relatively quick. Hopefully I don't forget anything. But hormonal contraceptives can influence relationships indirectly through physical and psychological side effects that they can cause. Most research has looked into the physical side effects and most medical literature, for example, some of which are negative and some of which are positive. I do think it's important to talk about both positive and negative potential side effects. So, for example, hormonal contraceptives can reduce your risk of ovarian cancer. They can treat PMS. Uh, They can reduce acne and facial hair for some women. They can also help with conditions like endometriosis and ovarian cysts all of which are clearly potential positive side effects, but they can also cause nausea, irregular vaginal bleeding, weight gain, and they can increase risk of life-threatening blood clots. Um, So potentially some very strong adverse negative side effects as well. Of course, lots of women experience no side effects at all, but when they occur, these side effects can impact your relationship with your partner in many different ways. But by comparison, less research has been done on the psychological side effects of hormonal contraception. The best known psychological side effect of hormonal contraceptives is that they're associated with an increased risk of depression and a worsening of depressive symptoms among those who already have depression. So some women also report mood swings associated with hormonal contraception Paradoxically, sometimes mood swings can be treated with hormonal contraception, so it depends on the case-by-case basis. And they can also report a worsening of other pre-existing mental health issues when they start hormonal contraception. Now, obviously, those sorts of concerns can impact relationships. Another relatively well-known side effect of hormonal contraceptives is a reduced sex drive, which is a common complaint among contraceptive users that can impact romantic relationships. Sexual functioning, so that sexual functioning means the physiological sexual response, such as vaginal secretions when aroused, uh, can also decline for some women when they're taking hormonal contraceptives. And when someone feels like their partner doesn't desire them, it can lead to resentment and other bad feelings within a relationship. And other psychobehavioral effects exist. Um, So that's certainly not all. But the other psychobehavioral side effects have only really been investigated in the last decade or so, so relatively recently. Evidence suggests that partnered women, so women that already are in a relationship and using hormonal contraceptives, experience more what's called intrasexual competition after taking hormonal contraceptives, which means they experience more competitive feelings and behavior directed towards other women, interestingly enough. Some evidence suggests that women taking contraceptives also experience more romantic jealousy and what are called mate retention behaviors. That refers to proprietary behaviors a person engages in to try to keep a partner faithful. Interestingly, so too do their male partners, possibly because of behavioral shifts their female partners are experiencing as a result of taking synthetic hormones. So it it seems to impact relationship dynamics in terms of things like jealousy and proprietary mate retention sort of behaviors, at least within heterosexual pair bonds. We we need to do a lot more research on non-heterosexual couples for sure. That which is out there currently is almost exclusively on heterosexual couples. So more research needs there for sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, Finally, there's some mixed findings on how hormonal contraceptives might impact relationship and sexual satisfaction within a couple. 
Some research has found that the pill, the birth control pill, is associated with better relationship satisfaction, whereas other research has found the opposite. So, for example, when questioning women who were versus were not on the pill when they met the father of their first child, a researcher named Craig Roberts and colleagues of his found that oral contraceptive users relative to the non-users scored lower on measures of sexual satisfaction and partner attraction. They experienced decreasing sexual satisfaction during the relationship, and they were more likely than their partner to be the one to initiate an eventual separation if a separation occurs. That said, those same contraceptive using women were less likely to separate from their partners overall and were more satisfied with their partner's financial provision than women who were not using contraceptives when they met the father of their first child. So these researchers went on to test what they called the congruency hypothesis. Um, so congruency meaning your changes basically in your use of hormonal contraceptives. And what they found was that what mattered was whether or not your contraceptive status changed. So if women were using contraceptives and then stopped or weren't using them and then started during the course of a relationship, that change was associated with a lowering of their sexual satisfaction and other satisfaction with their partner. But it did not impact men's reported sexual satisfaction, according to their research. So all of this is to say contraceptives seem to have a complex and varied effect on relationships. Yeah. And I think it varies from person to person as well, right? Not give these yes. from research, but yeah, I heard a lot of different stories from a lot of different people and I'm like, whoa, I just don't know what to believe anymore. It's kind of, it's kind of a new dimension, like a new world completely. Absolutely. And I do want to emphasize that even though we are looking into these these side effects that are occurring and some of them sound obviously very scary and negative that can change relationship dynamics and that sort of thing. I don't mean that to come across as being anti-contraceptives because I do think contraceptives are nonetheless still an important, it's an important decision that women can take to take control of their own reproductive lives, um, that, you know, relationships can have these discussions, of course, where they can come to their own family planning ideas and, and goals and so forth. So I do think there's obviously a place for hormonal contraceptives, but I do at the same time think it's important to have a good understanding of all of the potential side effects and how and why they vary from one person to the next. And that way, when we know more, people can make more fully informed choices about their own reproductive health. Mm, Yeah, that's a good point. And I remember you were talking about uh, non-heterosexual relationships and the fact that there's not much research that's been done. So even though this was it wasn't part of the questions that we set up in the beginning now i'm kind of curious because you know like for for the show we want to be as inclusive as possible right and we're talking mainly about heterosexual relationships so for mm-hmm. non-heterosexual relationships where can people start to find information if there's not much research that's been done then you know how can they actually find out about ways that can help them especially when it comes to contraception it depends a lot on what it is you're you're asking questions about. So why are you using contraception is a very important question and topic. With respect to non-heterosexual relationships, oftentimes contraception isn't really a concern. So for example, in lesbian couples, they aren't often concerned about, you know, one of them getting pregnant uh, for obvious reasons. But if you do need to use contraception for whatever reason, be that, perhaps you're interested in using contraception just to regulate your cycle, for instance, or for other potential health side effects. 
So if we're treating things like endometriosis or, you know, fibrous cysts and stuff like that, um, I think the first place you should seek information is from a doctor. So I think it's really important to talk to someone who has an understanding of your full medical history because it's possible you have something in your medical history that indicates whether or not you should use one type of contraception or another, whether or not higher doses are okay, or whether you should use a low dose method. And so that is, I think, the first kind of place that someone should stop and check, the primary care yeah. physician. There's also organizations, yeah. like in the United States, they have Planned Parenthood, which is a big one. Um, but yeah. other, other organizations like, um, the American Association for Reproductive Medicine. Sorry, my examples are U.S.-based because this is where I currently live. <laughs> but oh, good. I'm sure there's plenty of, of similar organizations yeah. in found in Australia. <laughs> yeah, and, and around the world as well. I'm hoping and we'll around have, the world, absolutely. Yeah, more of more of those, and we can certainly do our research to find out more which organizations and are also, in which country. I mean, there's also yeah, there's also the internet. So even if yeah. uh, so obviously even if you live in a country where you're, there isn't a lot of those organizations available to you then thankfully you can look up a lot of information online, but just make sure you're looking at reputable sources. Yeah, definitely. That's a good point. Thank you for that. I think it's a, it's nothing that we don't know, but sometimes we just need a little bit of a uh, you know, reminder that, hey, like if you really want to look into it, definitely talk to a doctor and just don't risk anything. Because I do hear yeah. from my friends, like, you know, when sometimes when they take contraception, it messes up with their immunity, you know, like with their um, weight, like some people just lose massive amount of weights. Some people start becoming really depressed and they have to get off, you know, contraception. So it's kind of important because they don't, we don't know what's going on with that particular person, which is why I said it varies from person to person. And it's so important mm -hmm. that you said we should seek information from a doctor. So that's a good point. Yeah, we should all remember. <laughs> yeah, Don't no, definitely no. Social media. <laughs> Get no, it no. from a reputable source. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay, so I would like to ask you now, uh, now we've covered the effects of, you know, contraception on relationships. What about the most common types of contraception when it comes to uh, the topic that we have talking about, and especially when it comes to effectiveness rate? Now, I'm very conscious that this might apply to heterosexual relationships more than non-heterosexual relationships. But yeah, what are the most common types? types of contraception that people use? The most common type of contraceptive used is what's called the combined hormonal contraceptive pill, which is a daily contraceptive pill that women take once per day. And it's made of a combination of synthetic estrogen and synthetic progesterone, which are sex steroid hormones that regulate the menstrual cycle. These pills can be what's called monophasic, meaning that the dose of synthetic hormones remains the same across the entire pill pack with the exception of the sugar pills, which is when you menstruate. Um, and they can also be what's called multiphasic, meaning that the dose of hormones changes across the cycle to better mimic the kind of hormones as they would occur across a natural menstrual cycle. Um, these pills are, they're very effective. They're certainly very effective and have less than a 1% perfect use failure rate. But um, of course, people are not perfect. <laughs> And um, they may forget to take their pill from time to time. So their actual use failure rate is around 8%. Uh, other popular hormonal contraceptives include the vaginal ring, the contraceptive patch, the injection, uh, and implants. Rings, patches, injectable, and injectable contraceptives are similarly comprised of synthetic hormones and have a typical use failure rate of around 4 to 8%. Implants are actually the most effective form of hormonal contraception, and they have a failure rate of around 
0.05%. You also have what are called intrauterine devices or IUDs, and um, they're the next most effective with a failure rate of around 0.1 to 0.4%. In fact, IUDs are what's most often used by gynecologists for their own contraceptive needs. Hmm. That's that's an interesting statistic. Um, so you mentioned the effect before, you know, so in relationships, this can play out in multiple different ways. We have some types of contraception that are really popular, but when it comes to couples, right, they would, each couple would have their own dynamic and situation, circumstance. So how can they figure out which kind of contraception is best for them? Couples should consider the reliability, safety, and reversibility of various methods. So for example, couples who wish to conceive in the near future should consider methods that are easily reversible, such as non-hormonal methods or barrier methods like condoms. Couples who do not ever want children can consider more permanent solutions like sterilization, or they can preferentially choose contraceptives known to be highly effective like an implant. Of course, safety is very important, and that all depends on your medical history. So as mentioned already, women with a history of or risk of high, uh, high risk of blood clots, for instance, um, should use non-hormonal based contraceptives and should instead opt for non-hormonal methods like condoms or there's also what's called a copper IUD that they could choose to opt for, which is a non-hormonal method. Uh, the contraceptive that is best, if you will, really depends on the individual you know, their relationship and their own circumstances. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's a good point. But, you know, I, we were talking about the short-term and long-term relationships earlier, right? And uh, from what you just told me, this sounds like it applies more for long-term relationships, if I'm not mistaken. So how about the short-term relationships? And especially this is like a dynamic of, you know, mating choice and, and other things that are related to that, which is probably related to your research. Not part of the questions that we set out in the beginning, but now I'm curious because how do we navigate these things, right? It's it's different from when you're navigating a long-term relationship versus a short-term one. And this happens probably more frequently nowadays in this new generation. So yeah, how about those kinds of circumstances? How do we know which kind of contraception would work better for them? And also, I want to throw in a lot of my girlfriends tell me that it's hard for them because um, sometimes guys do not want to use condoms. Weirdly enough, in conversations, it's kind of like, whoa, what? I know. But yeah, yeah it's kind of like, well, how do we navigate these things? Don't have sex with those men. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, walk away. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's one the thing. The best kind I of contraception. Think, yes. <laughs> I do think it's important to think about for short-term relationships, of course. Um, everyone's obviously entitled to their own beliefs and, and feelings, and people are welcome to have their short-term sexual encounters. There's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. I do think what's important is to protect yourself. So if you are you know, very sure and certain that you do not want pregnancy to result from a short-term sexual encounter, then I would use, you know, some method of birth control that you know is highly effective. Yeah, make sure that you're keeping up with your birth control pill or, you know, if you want to use an implant, something like that I think is very effective. Of course, for short-term sexual encounters in particular, you have other things to consider besides just pregnancy. You have to think about sexually transmitted infections and the best way to protect yourself against sexually transmitted infections is to use a condom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, if they don't want to use a condom, walk away. I yeah, think that's the message. 
exactly. yeah totally yeah that's that's a good Find point someone else <laughs> yeah but I think sometimes it, it depends on the circumstance as well it's easier said than done you know like I've heard stories and it's kind of like oh well like I was really drunk and I didn't really know what happened yeah those things have happened before and it's not that uncommon unfortunately no it's so, not you're absolutely yeah. right and I yeah. don't believe people should be I mean this is my personal belief I don't believe people should be shamed in any way shape or form for having sex it's something that adults do yeah. Um, but if you did feel after the fact that perhaps you weren't as careful as you would have liked to have been, there's things like, you know, plan B, which is emergency contraception that you can take after the fact. Um, you can obviously go to a doctor and get screened for sexually transmitted infections, just again, to be safe. There's some prophylactic treatment that you can take. Uh, so there are still ways that you can protect yourself even after the fact. Definitely, I know it's easier said than done, but what's certainly very important is that people are upfront with their needs and what makes them comfortable. And obviously consent is vital. Mm -hmm. Yeah, hundred percent. That's a really good point. It's nothing we don't already know, but I think sometimes we just forget when, you know, like, especially yeah. when I hear stories from my girlfriends, they just kind of like, oh, well that happened. And I like, and I was like, uh, but you let it happen really? But you know, it's kind of like, well, circumstance matters and we don't know the full story but I think it's yeah. it's good to remind people you know remind, especially people around us about the, the importance of this because like you said yes. it's not just about you know like uh, it's not just about birth control but it's also about you know other things like STDs that you don't want to get for example exactly Very important it's, to keep in mind yeah yes and birth control pills do not protect you against sexually transmitted infections at all <laughs> yeah. there's no yeah. protection there so you definitely would need a barrier method the best mm -hmm. of which protection against STIs anyway is certainly using a condom. Yeah, really good point. I'm glad we mentioned that. And um, final question on this topic for now is how do we navigate conversations with our partner around contraception? Now, I think this can, um, we probably can cover both grounds. So for both short-term and long-term relationships, because it, it's an important conversation to be had. And sometimes we just find it hard to start the conversation in the first place, which stopped us yep. from ever having any discussion whatsoever. So yeah, how do you recommend us to navigate this? I cannot emphasize enough the importance of communications. Conversations around contraception should ideally be had before any sexual activity that could lead to an unintended pregnancy occurs. Ideally, obviously. Both men and women in heterosexual relationships at least should feel comfortable and in any relationship should feel comfortable bringing up the topic of contraception with their partner. Now, although we tend to think of contraception as the woman's responsibility, like we were already talking about, it really falls on both partners to be open and honest with each other with respect to their family planning and other needs. Neither party should assume that the responsibility falls on the other party. It should be an open and honest discussion. And as with many other areas of navigating relationships, communication is key. Yeah, totally. I think it's uh, it's also important to say how to communicate as well, right? Because okay. we know the importance of starting to have these conversations. But um, I wonder if you have any tips for people that struggle a little bit when it comes to opening up about these things. Because when it comes to relationships, there are multiple facets of relationships. And, you know, some relationships, you're really open in talking about these things, but in others, not so much, especially when you have a certain... Um, condition in your life or, you know, you come from a certain background, cultural, religious or anything else. And it might be hard to think about talking about these things. Um, so I, I wonder if you've worked with people, you've done research in this area where we can come up with some 
let's say prompts or way we can actually go about this communication in the first place, respectfully, of course. So we don't want to, because we don't want to scare anybody off, I would say. Absolutely. I mean, our culture and our religion do play a large role in our sexual decision making, including the choice to use hormonal contraceptives or not to use hormonal contraceptives. However, although you do see lower rates of contraceptive use among people who are more conservative or from more conservative cultures and who are more religious, contraception does cross religious, political and cultural boundaries. So I think it's very important to emphasize that you do see a fairly widespread use of hormonal contraceptives worldwide. And so with respect to how it can affect things like communication, intimacy, and that sort of thing in a relationship, hormonal contraceptives can have a negative impact on sexual intimacy for reasons that we've already discussed, which can spill over into other areas of a person's relationship. Uh, They can influence things like sex drive and sexual functioning that can be negatively affected, and that can cause resentment or lead to a partner feeling insecure. Um, Not all women experience this, of course, as we've already said, but it is commonly a reported side effect of hormonal contraceptive use. And similarly, women who experience mood changes when taking contraception do report that it can have a lasting negative effect on their relationship. Also, we know that jealousy and those mate guarding, mate retention behaviors I talked about earlier can cause relationship conflict and that can increase the chances of a breakup. And evidence suggests that the pill increases these feelings and behaviors in both women taking the contraception and of course also their male partners. So um, that's, but of course that's also more relevant to when you're already taking the hormonal contraception and you notice that there is some kind of issue with relationship dynamic that you're experiencing. Um, There's no evidence that it, that taking the contraception itself affects communication per se. So of course communication again is key. And when it comes to discussing whether or not you're going to start having, um, taking a hormonal contraceptive or how you're going to use contraception, I think it makes a lot of sense just to kind of rip the bandaid off, so to speak. And I just think people need to be very open and honest with their partners. Um, So do so in a safe location, somewhere where you feel safe. And absolutely, it's vital that you feel safe with your partner. I think that's very important because hormonal contraception does shift power dynamics to an extent within a relationship or a lot of people perceive that it does. So if you don't feel safe, that can have a huge impact on how willing you are to discuss contraceptive options with your partner. In those cases, I would suggest reaching out to trusted friends, trusted mentors, um, doctors, clinicians, et cetera, to get that sort of help first and to kind of get that reassurance. If you don't feel safe in a relationship, that tells you, I think, a lot about whether or not the relationship should potentially continue. But of course, uh, I'm not in your relationship. So therapy is something I I can certainly recommend to people who are in those kinds of situations, but otherwise, um, that's like getting a little bit off topic here, I suppose. But Not when really, you're some, it's part of it. it. It is part of it. I mean, like I said, yeah. it does. There is a relationship between initiating contraception and um, abuse, for instance. So power imbalance in relationships is often associated with lower use of contraception. In particular, yeah. women who are in abusive relationships are much less likely to use contraception and report that their partners pressure or threaten them so that they do not use contraception. In fact, controlling women's reproduction is a commonly used abusive tactic. And once a woman has children, it can be more difficult for her to escape her abusive partner. You see much higher rates of contraceptive use 
on the flip side of that in healthier, more egalitarian relationships. And you also see better sexual communication. Also, women are more likely to report wanting to use hormonal contraception when they also perceive there is a conflict or power imbalance in their relationship. So when they're in abusive relationships, they want to use contraception even more, but feel less able to do so. So that said, um, couples do tend to use contraception less the longer they stay together. And you see lower rates of contraception use among more committed couples. And likely this is because these couples are more open to starting a family or, in all honesty, because people just become more careless over time and are more likely to risk a potential pregnancy. So it's, you know, that can also occur here. But it's really about communication with the partner. And if you don't feel like you can have that open and honest communication with your partner, then I say that speaks to a either a power imbalance or other issue within the relationship dynamics that is separate necessarily from hormonal contraception. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. That See, we thought it, it didn't get much to talk about, but it's actually a pretty big topic. And I think when you mentioned all of those different facets, I was kind of like, okay, everything is really interconnected, especially when you mentioned the power dynamic, That that is quite sh- shocking because I didn't yes. think about that at all. And yeah, now that you've mentioned it, it's true because even though I haven't heard stories, I've actually read books that talk about this topic and it's kind of like, it's a really hard dynamic to navigate, um, especially on the women's side. But um, it's it's good to know because I think, like you said, it's important to have communication about this, but it's also important to, to know why you're doing this so you can protect yeah. yourself when needed. Um, so yeah, this is a very important conversation and I'm glad that we've had it. Um, so now let's talk about something more practical. So, you know, we've covered uh, most of the theory. I'm sure there would be so much more that we can talk about. Um, so in case we didn't cover anything, uh, you can throw in some more facts and statistics in this part, but we would like to get practical and uh, recommend something to our audience that they can actually take with them. So what is a practice that you uh, have done with couples or that you would recommend to couples who have been using contraceptions or maybe for those who want to start using contraception? Um, So we could actually do two practices, actually. So there could be one for existing couples that are already using contraception or uh, another one and another one for couples that would like to start using contraception. What's a good practice for them to start doing together? I think this depends on your specific needs and beliefs. Uh, I don't personally recommend any particular contraceptive method. Uh, I think first and foremost, couples who are using or planning to use contraception should have a conversation with their doctor if possible. So I know I've already said that, but I think that is very important. Uh, Many contraceptive techniques use hormones to prevent ovulation. And as we've been discussing today, those hormones do come with other side effects and can interact with certain medical conditions. Certainly hormonal contraceptives are among the most effective methods for preventing an unwanted or ill-timed pregnancy. So it remains a viable option for many. But that discussion with your doctor is important to make sure those contraceptions are those contraceptives rather are safe for you to take. That's really important. Even if a person does not have risk factors associated with adverse health outcomes, some people react poorly to certain dosages or specific medications or even the specific kind of synthetic hormone that's being used. Because there's actually several different synthetic hormones that can be used to mimic progestin or estradiol, the dominant estrogen. Uh, So It's important to discuss your options with someone who knows your full medical history. 
it's also important to to be your own advocate. I think it's we're often you know taught as women that we just kind of have to put up with some of these side effects, and that's not actually true. If you experience negative side effects, you do have other options. There are so many kinds of birth control out there, including non-hormonal birth control options that exist. One I already mentioned was like the copper IUD. And of course, there's various methods and so forth. So do not feel like you just have to put up with whatever it is you're experiencing, whether that be headaches or acne or just generally not feeling like your old self. And if your doctor isn't willing to work with you to seek you know, another option, find another doctor. Yeah, that's a really good one. Thank you for that. Because I think a lot of couples would probably not think about actually consulting a doctor together. I think like that's, this is a really good practice to to do, especially when it comes to new relationships and you kind of like, you want to get into, you know, that phase where you actually get intimate. And I think it's important to keep in mind before you even think about doing that, it's actually very healthy to consult a doctor together because, um, you know, it it should come from both sides, right? The understanding who's going to do what it's kind of like a dual role kind of thing. It's not like you just do this by yourself. Yeah. Okay. Cool. There's even so, called contraceptive. Sorry, there's something. There's also something called contraceptive counseling, and you can oh, get yeah, contraceptive cool. counseling from a variety of resources. Again, Planned Parenthood is a really good one, and that's something that you can seek out as a couple. You can ask an expert's advice as a couple. What specifically would be best used in your situation, given your own religious beliefs, if that's the case, um, or socioeconomic status. Are you mm-hmm. just not in any kind of position to raise a child? Um, yeah. If that's the case, you want to you make sure you're using methods that are more foolproof, methods that are less likely to fail, and so on. Yeah. Yeah, I was about to ask you, actually, because um, I think in the U.S. and in Australia, I'm not sure about the... I think there's a massive difference in terms of the healthcare system. Um, but I'm just yeah. thinking to be more inclusive, obviously, there would be places where couples wouldn't get access to to such counseling or, you know, like get access to doctors that easily. Um, It might be hard to even afford to. And sometimes they don't do this, you know, so that's obviously one of the challenges. Um, But I'm imagining that there will be multiple other challenges that couples will have to overcome in in this scenario. So um, what are some of the challenges and um, to, to kind of convince them that they should do it. We can throw in some benefits to actually doing this, right? Because we know it's beneficial. It's very important um, to know what works for the couple. But yeah, yeah. what would be some of the benefits versus challenges? Um, And you can throw in some facts where you want as well. doesn't have to be in the particular order that I just said. Well, hormonal contraceptives come in a variety of forms and doses and they offer women relatively reliable protection against pregnancy and are generally very user-friendly. So those are definitely some benefits of using hormonal contraceptives. One of the main challenges of using hormonal contraceptives is that they require near-perfect use in order for them to be fully effective, but people are imperfect by nature and that impacts how well they work. So some women forget to take their pill, for instance. Um, There are also side effects to consider. Things like the implant, um, they can cause skin irritation. Some pills can cause weight gain or other side effects and so on. And as we've been discussing, there's some evidence to suggest that hormonal supplements of any kind can impact mood, subjective well-being, and behaviors directed towards a romantic partner like jealousy. So all these things should be taken into consideration for sure when it comes to whether or not you want to use hormonal contraceptives and in discussion with your partner, basically, about what do you think is going to work for you for using hormonal contraceptives. 
Yeah, there are a variety totally. of pros and cons, basically. I mean, mm-hmm. health-wise, the, the short-term pros and cons are very much found on a case-by-case basis. Some women respond positively to the pill or use it to treat medical issues like endometriosis, like I said before. But in contrast to them, those who experience negative side effects of contraception, such as weight gain or nausea, would feel those are the short-term, or short-term cons. Uh, for long-term pros and cons, there's reduced risk of unwanted real-time pregnancy, of course, that's the biggest pro of using contraception. Having more say over one's reproductive life has huge positive repercussions for lifetime earning potential, education, job prospects, and so on and so forth. It can also help women selectively choose who would make the best father for their future children and keep them from feeling trapped in an abusive relationship. So those are also huge long-term benefits that shouldn't be understated. And I've already mentioned some potential negative long-term issues with using the pill, including a decrease in sex drive, possible changes in sexual satisfaction, and increases in jealousy, mate retention behaviors, and depression. These psychological changes when experienced can have monumental and lasting impacts on romantic relationships, including causing conflicts that can lead to relationship dissolutions. They shouldn't be minimized or dismissed in any way. And of course, another long-term con is the impact the pill might have on mate choice and offspring health. This is a little bit more speculative, but some researchers have found that women who are on the pill have a lower preference for these supposed markers of good genetic quality in a potential romantic partner, meaning that so we women tend to have a sexual preference for relatively masculine males. And they think that's because masculinity of males is indicative of underlying genetic quality. So we find it attractive because people who found it attractive in our ancestral past were more likely to mate with those men, have offspring with those men, and then they would pass those genes for you know immunocompetence and longevity, et cetera, onto those offspring who would then be more likely to survive into adulthood and reproduce themselves, thus passing on their genes. And so what we find attractive, according to evolutionary psychologists, is very much dictated, and evolutionary biologists for that matter, and very much dictated by um, what is going to help our fitness, you know, what's going to help us pass on our own genes. So if you're attracted to genetic immunocompetence in a partner, not only will mating with that partner pass on their genes, it passes on your genes as well. Now, anyway, that's a long-winded way to say that um, some evidence find that women on the pill prefer the scent of actually more genetically similar men than women who are not on the pill, which in theory could be problematic because it's better for our offspring if we reproduce with genetically dissimilar partners. They also seem to have a relatively lower preference for those cues that I mentioned, things like cues to masculinity, which may signal underlying immunocompetence. And A few researchers have suggested that this apparent influence on mate preferences could lead to differences in actual mate choice for women that are taking contraceptions, and that if women are choosing less suitable partners, that it could have long-term negative impacts on their offspring who might be less healthy and so on and so forth. But sorry if I'm going on too long about this, but as mentioned, this is very, very speculative and is only based on indirect evidence. So more research into this possibility is certainly needed. Yeah, no, those are really good point because my like my whole life flashed before my eyes when you said that. <laughs> oh wow, so many things can happen, you know, if we don't take contraception seriously. Um, so yeah, I'm not in a relationship right now, but it's good to know for later. So this is why this is why it's good to know about these things, right? Because you it is prevention's better than cures. So you know about these things and you make conscious choices when you actually start getting into a romantic relationship. 
which is really good. And that's why we need more research into this area. I completely agree. Yeah. I mean, it's not that we're trying to like scare people yeah, into no. using or not using hormonal contraception. I don't think that's the goal. And I don't think that's useful in any way, shape or form. But I do think at the same time, the more we know, the better off we are. And so additional research into potential side effects and potential benefits for that matter can lead to new contraceptive methods, for instance, and ones that may be more suitable to an individual's needs. And there's nothing wrong with that. Having more options is always better. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for that. And finally, before we close out this section, uh, we did talk a lot about all of the different scenarios that this can have an effect on in terms of our lives in general. Uh, but we're talking about romantic relationships on this show. So I wonder, let's go back to the practice. You said, you know, let's go to, uh, you know, couples. It'll be a good idea for you to go to contraceptive counseling or to see a doctor to see which kind of contraception is best for you. So overall, how would you say that this practice would impact the romantic relationships that these couples are going to have or are experiencing should they do this practice? So it really depends on what kind of hormonal contraceptive you're using, um, whether how it's going to impact you and your relationship. It's so there's some like I said, there's non-hormonal methods. There's um, low dose hormonal methods. There's ones that are more foolproof versus versus otherwise. Uh, so it depends on whatever side effects a person actually experiences, whether or not mm -hmm. it's going to have a what they feel is a large impact on their romantic relationship. As we've mm -hmm. been discussing, some do seem to experience negative side effects like sexual dysfunction, increased jealousy, et cetera, et cetera. But and it can also it has also been, sh been shown in some women to impact just kind of general well-being in a negative way in terms of romantic relationships. That being said it does also have those positive side effects. So it's going to really be on a case-by-case -case basis how this practice would impact an individual's romantic relationship. There's evidence that we've been talking about that it, it impacts things like jealousy, but those look at averages. I do think it's important to mention that those are all looking at averages across multiple people. And so that doesn't necessarily mean that every single individual is going to have a drastic you know, change in their relationship dynamics based on they, you know, increasing or decreasing or changing their hormonal contraceptive method in some way. So I really think it's important to just kind of take a step back and take note of whatever side effects you yourself are experiencing, any change in relationship dynamics that you may be experiencing. And as I said earlier, I think it's really important to be your own advocate. So if, and I recognize that sometimes that's very difficult for people, but if it's yeah. at all possible, make sure that you speak up for yourself and um, discuss these things with your partner. I also think it's it would be better if we had more of this information out there for people to be more aware of potential side effects. So I was like, okay, maybe maybe I don't hate my partner. Maybe it's just that I started a new hormonal contraceptive last week and that's having an impact on my mood. Like those sorts of things are certainly possible. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting point because it can change the dynamic of the relationships completely. But I was thinking more of the actual practice of, you know, deciding to go see the doctor or see the oh, contraceptive okay. counseling in the first place, that could actually help relationships. I don't know in practice because obviously I haven't gone through this, but I think it would help to set the foundation of the relationship because, you know, you know that you're both responsible adults doing the right thing for the relationships. And I feel like this is a healthy thing that people can start yeah. looking at. It's not like, because a lot of people are kind of saying, oh, this is like the last thing I want to do. So embarrassing. Um, but I don't think so. I think it's actually really like a really adulting thing to do. It um, is. And absolutely. a healthy thing to sell. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people have a lot of sexual hangups and sexual taboos within our culture, even today, even though we're much more 
sexually liberated than we we were in, in decades past, absolutely. But nonetheless, people still struggle to discuss these topics. But if you can't talk about it with your partner with whom you are presumably also having sex, then who can you talk about it with, really? Well, you could talk about it with your close you know, friends and things like that. But I do think anyone interested in using hormonal contraceptives should ideally consult a physician. You know, general practitioners, OBGYNs, they're important resources for health-related information. Um, and they can also, as I mentioned already, they can offer that contraceptive counseling and that can be with you and your partner. So if you are finding that you're struggling to have that conversation, maybe instead just suggest speaking to a third party, a neutral third party about this and about your different options. So this can include when you're thinking of, you know, selecting a new contraception, whether you're thinking of discontinuing using hormonal contraception, that's something that both partners should be aware of. And also if you're thinking of changing contraceptive methods. So there's several online societies that provide these resources. I've mentioned some already. Um, so like there's the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, that's one, and there's Planned Parenthood. But, um, you know, unfortunately, relatively little information is provided to patients with respect to all of these psychological side effects we talked about. So if someone feels like they're experiencing those side effects, that's when they need to speak out for themselves. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. And I think it's important to address this. Um, and in fact, we have a question from our audience that's kind of related to this. Um, and, and I think you've seen this question before and we kind of mentioned it briefly, but um, let's go into a bit more detail. And it's about the availability and accessibility of contraception. So this can affect individuals and couples in different parts of the world. So uh, we mentioned briefly before that, you know, different places in the world would have different access and kind of information. So it's not like one size fits all, you know, even though we talked about the theory, yeah, it's really good to, you know, see contraceptive counseling. That probably is not available in a lot of parts in the world. So what can be yeah. done to address any disparities or barriers to access? That's the question. It's an excellent question. And unfortunately, the poorest people and people living in poor areas consistently have the lowest access to resources like contraceptives. This is true both within countries like the United States, but also across different countries. So people who have less money, have less power, have fewer resources, have less access to contraception, which the result is that people who these people are less able to the people who are less able to afford the expenses like associated with children are then more likely to have large families, almost paradoxically. So this exacerbates poverty and related issues, leading to more children without access to education, access to medical care and other needed services and resources. And this occurs not just in non-Western nations, but in Western nations as well. And certainly there's an issue with child poverty, no question. Uh, misinformation is another significant barrier to contraceptive use. And that misinformation can be politically or religiously motivated. So for what can be done, great question. Comprehensive sex education is highly effective at reducing both the risk of unwanted pregnancies or ill-timed pregnancies and the risk of sexually transmitted infections. So age-appropriate comprehensive sex education should begin early and should continue on until at least in the teen years, if not beyond. So also funding programs and organizations that provide information about contraceptives and give access to those contraceptives when needed is vital. Yeah, totally. I think um, sexual education is not done nearly enough in most countries. And I agree. Um, 
Yeah. So I'm originally from Vietnam and trust me, it was a joke when that happened because everyone was not taking it seriously and it was kind of like, you know, especially we were kids. So a lot of the boys were just making fun of it. Um, and yeah, and, and that just kind of changed the dynamic of the session because it was supposed to be really educational, real serious. Um, not that the girls were not joking about it either. Um, but yeah, I, <laughs> I just I just remember it now. And it's kind, and it's kind of like it, it could have been done a bit differently. Um, to encourage yeah. the kids to really learn because education is so important, right? You you have it and it's going to be with you forever. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, just so a, that's so true. Just, yeah, just sorry. a thought. Yeah, I, I no, completely agree. Good. And I yeah. do think there's, you don't underestimate the power of laughter because that's still, I think, something that you can bring in. I mean, it doesn't, it should be educational, but it doesn't mean it can't be fun, right? Yeah, I, I'll totally. never forget my first ever sex ed class when I, so I grew up in Canada and I think I would have been in the sixth grade, so primary six. And um, the first sex ed class, I remember where they had this video they played for us where um, the narrator said, penises are like noses. They come in all different shapes and sizes. And all of a sudden there were a bunch of animated penises going across the screen that were all wearing classes. And everybody in the class lost it. We all started laughing hysterically. And here I am many, many years later, and I still remember that. So don't underestimate the power of humor. <laughs> yeah, totally. No, I think it's good, but it's just it's just more like from the other end. You know, like it, it's also good to for kids to take it seriously as well. And well, how yeah. that can happen, that comes from the people that start the conversation, i.e. the teachers, the parents, why this is so important and you know to take it seriously, even though it can be really awkward talking about this and learning about it in the first place. So, yeah, I think that's a that's a very important point to remind it everyone. Is. Yeah, I yeah. completely agree. People think that talking to your kids about sex is going to mean they're going to have sex when actually the evidence suggests the opposite. You know, kids who are spoken to about sex rather than t just told don't have sex, you know, so as in contrast to abstinence only sex education, um, comprehensive sex education leads to them more likely to wait longer to have sex, to, to make they're more sure they're more comfortable about having sex or less likely to have ill-time pregnancies or less likely to get sexually transmitted infections. So... It's better to teach someone to swim rather than when you bring them to the pool, is metaphorically yeah. speaking, than to just throw them in. And mm. that's kind of what abstinence-only sex education does. It just says, don't do it. <laughs> yeah. That's unrealistic for in a lot of situations. So if you totally. educate children and teenagers about the risks, the positives, negatives of, of sex, of sexual behavior, of relationships and intimacy yeah. and so forth, then they're better equipped to make those decisions when the adults aren't around. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's a really good point. So enlightening. Thank you so much for that. And uh, this is the end of all the questions that we have for you today. But before we let you go, there's a section called Open Mic. It is your stage to talk about anything you're passionate about. I know you have a great topic in mind, so please take it away. I just, this isn't actually a topic of research for me, but it is something that I'm quite interested in because um, I am a mother in academia. I've got two beautiful children and they're five and one. Um, and um, so not only am I, you know, a female scientist and a, and a female professor, but I'm also a mother. So I'd like to talk a little bit about motherhood in academia and science more generally. So science, technology, engineering, and math degrees and careers, which are also referred to as STEM degrees and careers, remain dominated by cisgender, heterosexual, able-bodied white men for the most part. So women, racial and ethnic minorities, sexual minorities, and those with disabilities remain largely underrepresented, particularly among academic doctoral students and faculty. 
So although more women than men are earning bachelor's degrees now in STEM and in medicine even, women remain underrepresented in full-time STEM careers and in medical positions. And this lack of, rep- of lack of retention in STEM and medical careers and things, is, this is sometimes referred to as what's called the leaky pipeline. Um, it represents a significant loss of talent and innovation. So women, they constitute about 20% of tenured professorships in the physical sciences and around 15% in engineering despite earning degrees in those fields at much higher rates. So even in female-dominated fields like psychology, so I'm in psychology and it is a female-dominated field um, in which the vast majority of undergrad of the graduates from undergraduate and graduate degrees are female, on, on, nonetheless, only 60% of university professors that are psychology lecturers and 33% of psychology full professors, and that's as high as, that be, as you can get in academia basically, are female. So that shows that even though we start out with this huge surplus of women in this female dominated field, you still see this leaky pipeline being present even within the female dominated subjects. And so academic and and science related careers lose women as people progress up through the ranks. And it's not enough to get women into these career paths, but we also need to be better as a society at retaining female talent. Certainly research, you know, finds that women entering doctoral programs are just as likely as men to say at the start of their doctoral programs that they want to be a professor, for instance. But these women are twice as likely as men to have decided by the time they graduate that they don't want to be professors. So this begs the question, why are we losing these women? You know, why is this the case? And there are a variety of answers as to why we're losing women in academia and STEM fields. But one of the reasons is motherhood. So full circle coming back to motherhood. And in fact, uh, one recent study found that even among childless women graduating with their PhD, a substantial number cite the perception that science and academia are incompatible with motherhood, but not fatherhood, interestingly enough, as the number one reason why they are leaving academia or the sciences. So there's a strong perception that moms can't be scientists because it's not compatible with that career. Uh, several women still report being advised by supervisors to choose between motherhood and a career in science or academia, whereas men are not getting that same negative message about parenthood. Other evidence finds that um, children having children negatively impacts a woman's earnings, but actually gives a boost to male earnings. And this is something that's become known as like the motherhood penalty, for instance. So meanwhile, women with children are not less productive, according to research. So you know, just because you have children doesn't mean you're not able to actually get the job done. And even though we have this, this these accurate stereotypes to the contrary, it's just not actually borne out in research. There, of course, have been some efforts to combat this problem in academia, but it's certainly not enough. Uh, so, for example, women can often choose to pause their tenure clocks when they're when they have children, and so meaning that they can delay going up for tenure for a year or so and thus have more time to kind of prove themselves. This sounds like a great idea in theory, and there is certainly a time and place for stopping the clocks, but doing so means it takes women longer to get promotion. Mm. That exacerbates gender-based wage gaps. That's something that we commonly see is that male professors are more than female professors, and you certainly don't just see it in academia and sciences. You see wage gaps across a variety of careers. 
Um, and there's some evidence on top of that that women are discriminated against and seen as less serious about their jobs when they opt to take maternity leave. For instance, of course, these issues are worse than the United States because <laughs> there's no mandated paid federal leave programs in the United States. Uh, so that means women are here are often forced to decide between pricey childcare costs to return to their jobs before they're even healed from labor and delivery often or just leaving their jobs entirely. So there are other issues related to workplace culture that certainly need to improve. Clearly, um, many women and mothers report you know, harassment, discrimination at work, particularly when they're in more male-dominated fields. It's also common for academic conferences and meetings to take place outside of business hours or at irregular hours, which can be a big issue for a lot of parents and mothers in particular, because women are often still the default parent when it comes to the majority of childcare. And on top of that, many of the metrics used by academics to evaluate professors for promotion. So things like teaching evaluations that students fill out, those have been shown repeatedly to discriminate against women and minorities because they're based on these subjective opinions. So they're very subject to bias. So the bottom line, I'm sorry if I've been going on a lot about this, but the bottom line Ooh. is that women and mothers are drastically underrepresented in STEM fields and in academia more generally. And this represents a tremendous loss of talent and resources. So family-friendly policies like you know flexible work hours, on-site affordable childcare, paid leave programs and so forth, would certainly go a long way towards retaining women in these fields, which I think will benefit everyone. And even though there is this perception that you know motherhood is incompatible with academia and with the sciences, I've actually found it can be quite compatible in a lot of ways because sciences, scientific careers and academia can have a certain amount of flexibility built into them, which when you're a parent is fantastic. It's awesome to have that kind of flexibility. So there are, it's not all bad. And certainly I think scientific fields and academia more generally benefit from women's experiences and opinions. So we need, we need more of you gals to kind of come into the ranks. <laughs> Yeah, that's a really beautiful message. I mean, it, it sounds really sad about what you said earlier about all these discrepancies, especially for women in science and STEM. Um, and I didn't know much about this. So this is new information for me. Thank you for sharing that. I'm pretty sure it's new information for a lot of people as well. Uh, and I guess the, the big question is, what are we going to do about it? So, you know, I'm keen to see, you know, what's going to happen there. Um, and I guess since you're so passionate about this area, I wouldn't be surprised if your name's on one of the research papers. <laughs> it's not my main area of research, but it's certainly something that I've always felt very strongly about. You know, I've, I've always felt strongly about female representation and, and not just women, obviously women, minorities, people with disabilities, people that are sexual minorities, et cetera, et cetera, need to be represented because the more the more voices we have going into the sciences, the better off things are really for everyone. A good yeah. example is, is, you know, the medical community. So we still to this day have issues of women being over-medicated, for example, um, and women having more severe side effects to common medications because a lot of medical research is based exclusively on men and men as the default and then used to treat women. When you have women's voices in those decision-making processes, and again, not just women, but when you have more diverse representation, it leads to just better general science. So everyone wins out in the end. Yeah, totally. Thank you so much for being here and sharing all of that, especially the message at the end. I think oh I'm going to I'm gonna keep thinking about that. You know, um, <laughs> I don't come across this topic very often. I know it is a thing, uh, but not in depth. Um, so, yeah, I really saw your passion when you were talking about it, especially as a... <laughs> 
working mom, uh, a working mom I've, professor yeah. in science. <laughs> I've definitely always known about it. I've always known yeah. about issues of motherhood and academia. It's always kind of been in the back of my mind. And I've certainly yeah. seen it. I've witnessed the discrimination. Um, mm. But it's one thing to witness it. And it's another thing to become a mother and then really experience it firsthand. Yeah, <laughs> totally. In countries like the United States that don't necessarily have the most family-friendly policies. Uh, so mm. where I grew up in Canada, it's common for women to take at least a year's maternity leave and it's paid paid leave. Um, and then I, I was, as I already mentioned, I was educated in Scotland, which again, it's very common for women to have extended paid family leave. And then in the United States, the United States and this is, of course, where I ended up having children, um, it was certainly a, a very different cultural kind of experience, almost a bit of a culture shock, really, that it's a very different attitude towards whether or not someone should get pay leave at all, you know, whether people oh, wow. should, should we pay for, you know, her to stay at home, that there's that kind of negative attitude, should businesses have to pay and, and so on and so forth. And so it's just very culturally different for sure. And I do think, um, you know, having come here and experienced that little bit of a culture shock when it comes to parenthood was it was certainly something that took me a little bit of time to kind of get used to, but it also made me even more passionate about this topic, for sure. It's something I've always thought, yeah. felt strongly about, but having experienced it myself firsthand, you know, even more so, for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Again, thank you so much for sharing about this. As I said, I'll spend some time digesting all this information. Uh, this is very new to me um, and I guess to a lot of our audience as well. And But it's important to keep in mind. Very different topic from what we started talking about at the beginning, but it is, um, yeah. <laughs> nonetheless, it's just as important. So thank you so much for being here. I appreciate you staying back after your work hours to do this. Uh, you said you no were, problem. you don't know how you're going to do, but you did a great job. Thank you so much. And <laughs> hopefully so much. we'll have you back some other time to talk about some of the other things that we didn't get to cover. I would love to. Yeah. Thank you. You've been listening to Reliscope, the Relationship Science Insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Lab. For more episodes like this from 10 different life management perspectives, search LMSL on YouTube, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts, so you can get updated on everything we have to offer. We have a wide range of topics readily available for you to check out. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating our show, sharing it, and subscribing to our channel as it helps us grow and bring you more quality resources. More of our work can be found at re.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Aditi Kuti. Thanks for tuning in.